the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in Holden. Fields Pond has a year-round nature store, lake access, and offers educational programs about habitat conservation for people of all ages. More information at maineaudubon.org or 989-2591. Support for Talk of the Towns also comes from Table, a farmhouse bistro, serving dinner Tuesday through Saturday starting at 5 p.m. Located at 66 Main Street in Blue Hill. More information at farmkitchentable.com. Time is 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is, with produce, is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine. And like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And before there were roads, Maine's colonial settlement took place around natural harbors, All waterfront land was tied to early livelihoods, fishing, farming, boat building, and other forms of commerce and trade. But by late in the 20th century, much of Maine's working waterfront to support fishing and boat building had been squeezed out by private home and commercial development. This is Ron Beard of University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant, and today's program we're going to be talking about how we can protect our working waterfronts. And I'm glad to have two colleagues in the studio with us who can help us with that. Uh, Jen Litteral is the policy director for the Island Institute. Welcome to you, Jen. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, I should say, because I know we've, we've talked about fishing policy in, in the past. <laughs> yes, we have. And Natalie Springle um, of the University of Maine Sea Grant. Welcome to you, Natalie. Thanks, Ron. It's good to be here. Natalie is is um, on this side of the microphone or the other side of the microphone. Sometimes she's co-hosted or um, hosted um, the program in my absence, so we're glad to have her um, share her expertise on, on the working waterfront. Natalie, we'll start with you and just a little thumbnail sketch of what Maine Sea Grant is all about. Um, The University of Maine Sea Grant Program, based out of Orono, um, is um, dedicated to sustainable use of our coastal and marine resources, and we do both research and outreach all up and down the coast related to a variety of marine and coastal issues. Great. And um, Jen, most folks will know of the Island Institute, but perhaps some of our listeners aren't familiar with it. What's the... What is the Island Institute? (laughs) Uh, Sure. We're a uh, 25-year-old nonprofit stationed down in Rockland, Maine, and it's to support uh, both a balance of human and uh, resource uses of our coastal and island communities. Mm. So both of you um, kind of have a natural interest in working waterfronts based on your constituencies, the people who um, kind of uh, support your organizations. And and so tell us a little bit how you got um, first started in in thinking about the working waterfront. Natalie, um, you kayaked um, and you did an expedition around the, the Gulf of Maine. You probably saw some examples where working waterfronts um, for fishermen and and, uh, people using them because they depend on the water were being kind of squeezed out. Yeah, that's exactly where my interest um, started was was when I spent, you know, days and days and days on the water um, and really started seeing the shifts happening on the water, shifts in development, um, shifts in who was using the water, um, increasing use by um, folks who weren't necessarily making their living on the water um, and decreasing use by uh, decreasing ability by people who needed to make a living on the water for them to do that anymore. So um, really sort of started recognizing and hearing from people up and down the coast that, that accessing the coast was becoming a, a larger challenge for a variety of users. Mm. And how would you define working waterfront? I've used it um, kind of off the cuff here, but how would you define it? Um, I would define working waterfront as um, really as the soul and character of Maine's coastal communities, mm. um, as places where 
we have such a rich heritage of people working on the water um, and that that immediate interface of the waterfront area, the shoreline where people can access the shore to go work and and in many cases play. But um, for the working waterfront, it's really um, areas where um, individuals and businesses who are dependent on the water to make a living. Um, To me, that's that sort of defines what working waterfronts are all about. So historically, it's the whole coast of Maine. Um, and really in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years is when we've we've seen a change on that, of mm. the working part of the So waterfront. we can imagine a fishing pier um, and, mm-hmm. and um, that kind of uh, shift where maybe someone comes and buys the fishing pier and it's no longer available to the fishermen. There's also access questions around um, clam diggers. Um, they aren't able to get to the water as easily as they were by walking across private p- property. Is that right? Right. So as um, as land has changed hands over the years, the ethic of sort of permissive use of the coast um, and, and letting the clamor down the street get to the shoreline from, you know, your your lawn into your beach, um, that ethic somehow changes a little bit as um, as different people become, become waterfront landowners. Mm. So it has become a challenge for clamors and diggers and a whole suite of, of waterfront users. Jen, can you help us kind of with, with some, some detail around this? How, what, how big is this, is this issue? What are some of the facts and figures? Sure. Um, <clears throat> our coastline is about 5,300 miles in length, if you include all of the <laughs> island coastal coastlines as well, which we do at the Island Institute. Um, and in... Uh, early 2002-2004, um, the state planning office did a study to really look at uh, what was the trend that was going to be happening in Maine, and they found that from 2000 to 2050, in that time period, most of our coastline is going to be classified as urban or suburban. Mm. Uh, when that study came out, <clears throat> it was very shocking to many of us um, working along the coast and the coastal and um, island communities. Uh, and a few other studies came out of that. Coastal Enterprise did a study, uh, the first one, which was interviewing, I think, 25 harbor masters up and down the coast to find out what access issues were. Was it an issue? Were they decreasing? Um, and that became relevant that it was that it was really a problem. That springboarded to a large GIS mapping study that the Island Institute did um, and concluded in 2006 where we determined that out of our 5,300 miles of coastline, there are only 20 miles that remain for access for working waterfronts, for commercial fishing, for usage. Those 20 miles are actually 66% of them are privately owned and are vulnerable to conversion very easily. So um, our work over the last uh, six years has really been to protect those remaining 20 miles. So. Mm. And, and uh, we've alluded to some of the threats, but what are some of these threats? How, how is the, the, the waterfront changing? Um, I think just a perfect example is the economic times we have right now. You have a fisherman who has a business, has a house on the water, and usually fishes from his own pier, um, can still fish from a town pier, um, but he could sell his property for a lot of money right now. I mean, we see <clears throat> decreasing real estate values in every other state except Maine on the waterfront. And there's, I, you know, you can't blame them. They need, you know, whatever resources they w- want to use. But once that property is lost, you don't see a, a condominium changing back into a waterfront. You see waterfronts changing into condominiums or very mm-hmm. large houses along, along the coastline. So once that's lost, you don't, you're not able to really get that back. So it's both ownership and, as Natalie pointed out, um, common courtesy or the ethics of sharing your right. land with people who have who make their living uh, right. from the water. Mm-hmm. So um, this led this this kind of um, kind of research into what the trends were led to a g- bunch of people coming together to say, "What can we do?" So you both have been involved in a working waterfront coalition here mm-hmm. in Maine, and who wants to describe that, Natalie? Um, yeah, I can start. <clears throat> so Jen alluded to some of the studies that were done um, over the years that really looked closely at what issues towns were facing, and so they in these studies they interviewed harbor masters and other other town folks and. And what really kept coming up was the fact that towns needed help in addressing these issues for their for their citizens. Um, and in particular, they needed help with um, planning um, and research uh, related to, to working waterfronts. They needed help in identifying funding sources to be able to jump on the opportunities to purchase and protect working waterfront lands. Um, and they also needed help with policy questions. Um, how do you, you know, sort of how do you get these these issues um, in the eyes of, of Augusta. Um, so um, back in, I think it was 2005, I'm looking at Jen, somewhere back then, about 
six or so years ago, um, a number of different organizations and individuals came together to form the Working Waterfront Coalition, um, who at this point, it's 140 um, different organizations, um, uh, nonprofits, state agencies, um, a variety of different uh, interest groups and individuals that have come together to support and enhance working waterfront protection and really focusing on those very clear needs that were identified early on through a series of, of interviews. So the focus of the Working Waterfront Coalition for the past six or so years has been on helping communities and individuals and businesses um, plan, research, um, identify funding sources and investment opportunities, as well as education, um, because the people who are immediately impacted by the loss of working waterfront. So we were talking about fishermen, for example. Obviously, they understand that they're that they're facing the challenge, but the wider population of the coast of Maine. Um, maybe didn't get it as immediately personally. So there's been a significant amount of education, too, to help the, the general Maine population understand the issue and, and really kind of wrap their brain around what it meant for the changing character of our coastal communities. Mm. We're talking with Natalie Springle, who is with University of Maine Sea Grant, and Jen Litteral of the uh, Island Institute. She's the policy director there. And you're tuned to Talk of the Towns as we talk about protection for working waterfronts here in Maine. And I think we'll um, see some national um, pictures um, emerge later. Um, we're going to be trying to talk with folks a little later on from the Port Clyde's Fishermen's Co-op and the Spruce Head Fishermen's Co-op Cooperative um, about how they've used some of the, the research and the techniques um, that uh, have evolved from the working for waterfront, so stay tuned for that. Um, Natalie, what are some of the, the tools that um, are available to communities or um, individual co-ops, uh, fishermen's co-ops? What, what are some of the tools that you've discovered um, through this work? Um, well, there's another a number of tools available, um, and I think Jen's going to go in a little bit of detail on some of them, but just in general, um, certainly there's um, the ability to incorporate working waterfront um, sort of goals within um, the regular town planning process, harbor planning, car- comprehensive planning. Um, that's where a lot of the public education has come in to help towns understand um, that there's that there's a place for working waterfronts within the planning process. So we, we, we could imagine that um, 50 years ago, the people who were making decisions um, around towns were fishermen themselves. Right. Now the people who are serving, volunteering for those boards may not have had a fishing background at all or a working waterfront background. They're coming in. They per- perhaps purchase property from some other state. They don't know the traditions, and so they need that kind of educational help, support. Exactly, mm. exactly. As, mm. as the, the sort of the makeup of, of who's running the towns changes over time, there, there needs to be more um, help in understanding what, what role working waterfronts have played over the generations. Um, There's also been a lot of work done um, in working in partnership with land trusts, um, using some innovative tools where land trusts historically have focused on conservation goals, um, working with land trusts to incorporate um, working waterfront and coastal access within some of those um, conservation properties. Um, So there's been some really neat work there. Um, Folks who are interested in the suite of tools, um, and then I'll let Jen talk in more details, can find can I mention a website? Yes. Um, there's a website that a number of different organizations have pulled together a humongous suite of tools to help communities and businesses address working waterfront needs. It's called www.accessingthemaincoast.com. That's one word, accessingthemaincoast.com. And on that website, you can zero in on a whole variety of tools, including... Jen, you want to talk about <laughs> sure. some of those tools? Yeah. Um, I just want to start with some of the, the big initiatives that the coalition, once uh, they started in 2005, um, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, the problems that we're seeing along the coast are problems that um, our other heritage in Maine, which is farming. Mm. Um, we just we just kind of replicated some of the programs that they had already established to preserve farmlands um, that we needed here in Maine as well. Sa- the fishing communities were facing the same problems now that the, the farmers were facing. Um, so in 2005, we went out uh, for a constitutional amendment change for to create a program for current use taxation for working waterfronts. This didn't exist. It does it did exist at the time already for farmlands, for tree growth, um, and for open space. Um, So that actually won overwhelmingly in 2005 by 72 percent. So it really showed that the state got this was an issue that, you know, was cross-cutting against, you know, all of the heritage of of Maine. Um, At that same time, we went out in 2005 for a bond, so it was very, (laughs) quite a lot on the docket that year. 
And it was a bond to create a new program, um, a pilot program for preserving working waterfront access. And it was called the Working Waterfront Access Pilot Program. That was in a conservation bond in 2005 um, that won by 54%. And again, just uh, we've went out again in 2007. Uh, it won again by 63%. And just this current year, uh, it was voted on again for $1.75 million. So we've had $5 million, uh, three the first year, uh, two the second time, and $1.75 this, this current time now. That program, um, again, we're about six years into it, I believe, five years into that program. Um, they the, the basis of it is um, it's on exchange for a conservation easement. So we had to actually create a working waterfront covenant. Current easements that exist for land trust properties require public access. And as you know, in working waterfronts, you have, you know, docks and steep docks, slippery, sometimes with bait and that kind of thing. And it doesn't really work with public access all the time. So the the working waterfront access pilot program and the working waterfront covenant bond uh, work in tandem. And way we created the program where Natalie has hit on a lot of the access issues. It's not just specifically for commercial fishing, but this program is detailed for around commercial fishing access. Um, that in the state of Maine is over $300 million of revenue and around 40,000 jobs um, and encompasses about 142 coastal towns. So um, it, it really has a large impact. The commercial fishing was the, the major way to create this um, for right now, which could be changed over time as needs change. So um, the, prog- the program was created. Uh, it is run by the Department of Resources and is outsourced to a contractor who has been CEI for the last few years to, to, create, to bring people in through the, through the process of the applications and everything like that. In turn, so a person comes into the program, applies for it if they own the property or want to buy a property, and what is established is the difference between the um, uh, the real estate value and the um, current used value of the property, and it's the difference between that two. The appraisal of that is the amount that the covenant is given. So in turn, the property owner is given a portion of money for their development rights. That covenant then sits on there, and it's in perpetuity will always be for commercial fishing, um, even if the property is sold, it always has to stay with that. Those covenants are held by the Department of Marine Resources, and um, we are now into, um, like I said, five years of that program. Um, I can give a little bit of how much we've preserved over that. Um, it's we've have 19 properties that we've um, done up and down the coast. It's uh, preserved 40 acres of land, uh, which is over one mile of that 20 miles mm. of coastline that we're trying to preserve. Uh, 520 boats, 950 jobs. Um, it's uh, about $40 million in income directly dependent on working waterfronts. The major criteria to come into that program is economic significance. As you can see, that I just gave through the details of how much fishing and uh, money is related to fishing. So economic significance is the highest uh, criteria. Alternative properties in the vicinity, are there two wharves side by side and is one going to displace the other or, you know, kind of having to look at that? Um, is the community um, in support of this? Um, are there, you know, local legislators that are supportive? Is the municipality in support of it? Are they doing other things in that town to support these properties and zoning and things like that? Uh, threat of conversion, have has there already been an offer on that property to be sold? Um, and then the last one is the utility. Is the property in good working order or does it need a lot of money sunk into it to keep it in working order? So those are the criteria and some of where we're at within the first five years of just $5 million. We've leveraged over $14 million um, in, uh, I'm sorry, $880 million in um, additional economic um, and contributions have come in to that uh, to that $5 million in bonds. So two basic strategies. One is to make sure that um, uh, land that's in working waterfront is taxed at current use, right. not as, it, as its full potential. So it, it's not taxed as though a hotel were on that land. Right. And the second is um, uh, bond issues um, that the state, um, the voters have approved mm-hmm. that allow you to go in um, and through an application process and preserve, you've got a legal mechanism called the covenant that you're using, but it's, it's to pr- protect specific uh, pieces of, of property. Right. 
Well, that seems seems like um, six years of work. You've, you've accomplished a lot. <laughs> yeah. You've accomplished a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And as you as you um, talk to people at the town level, um, what's been the reaction? What what have people um, kind of given you as feedback as you've described? This is our goal. This is what we intend to do. Um, what's been their reaction? Because, you know, in in a town, um, if you reduce taxes on one property, you may be passing it on to somebody else. Are people supportive of that? Um, I, I think that generally we they have been. We did a large, and I think Natalie can probably talk to this a lot more, we did an outreach after the current use taxation was passed and did a series of workshops up and down the coast that um, tax assessors and local landowners and could come and learn about the project and what was important about it. And um, I think that generally people understood that and understood that, you know, they – while it might be some loss of income, it's not a, a large amount in taxes in that in that community. Mm. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the only thing that I would add is um, that the current use taxation um, had been proposed previously a number of years ago, and it initially didn't pass. Um, and then when it did pass in 2005, I think it was, um, the climate had really changed um, because people along the coast of Maine really started recognizing that there was a dramatic change happening along the waterfront. And so uh, really the understanding of the importance of working waterfront and how it's such an integral part of the fabric of communities <clears throat> became much more uh, sort of ingrained in the voters. And so so it, so it the second time it, mm. it passed Great. without a problem. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about the protection for working waterfronts. Um, we have guests in the studio who are helping us with that topic. Jen Literal, who is the policy director for Island Institute, and Natalie Springle, who's at the University of Maine uh, Sea Grant Program. Uh, we're joined now uh, by phone uh, by Jerry Cushman. Jerry is with the Port Clyde Fishermen's Co-op. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Jerry. Thank you. You're, yep, you're, on, you're, you're on your fishing boat. How's the fishing today? Well, when I got up, it was 8 degrees, and it was blowing about 15 knots, and my boat right now was solid ice, and, and my hands feel like they're going to fall off. So uh, other than that, we do have blue skies and sun. So. That's good. So tell us a little bit about the, the uh, Fisherman's Co-op that you're associated with, so that then we can find out how you're taking advantage of the working waterfront uh, mechanisms. Well, well, the co-op in, there, in Port Clyde was originated by a bunch of fishermen, including my uh, father and grandfather, and... Uh, a lot of aunts, I mean, a lot of uncles. And um, it was a group of fishermen that, that uh, bought a piece of property that, that wanted to join forces as fishermen to try to get a better price and preserve working waterfront way back then. Um, the writing on the wall was, was there that long ago. This, we're talking 20, 30 years ago, probably 30 years ago at least. And uh, with this working waterfront program, we have new members coming in and out of the co-op all the time, and, and it's run by a board. And this board can de decide to sell this working waterfront, you know, with newcomers. And we, we want to make sure that the new board, the new fishermen, never get tempted like that with, uh, with the prices get increased the way they are. And uh, so this working waterfront really protects that, make sure that it stays working waterfront. And, I mean, today we got uh, 27 lobstermen running out of there and about... Uh, Oh, right now we get about ten or fifteen shrimpers. So basically, what you're saying is that um, you've used the mechanism to kind of lock up the use of that land forever for um, fishing purposes. Correct. And, and what it, what it was first tended to be done, but unfortunately, with a co-op, you, you you get you know like any business, you get run by a board, and uh, you know any board can decide to sell. Um, so this kind of protects us in that way that that because uh, the co-op this really got into it. We got offered a, a 1.4 million dollars for our piece of property, and I see some guys I you know light up because that would have been uh, um, a good chunk of change. But that's not what the property is meant for. It's meant for fishermen to use in their time of fishing, and when they leave, they leave it for the next generations. Mm. And that's a little bit like a uh, you know family members owning a cottage together somewhere, and uh, you know unless you've got it locked up legally, one person could say, "I think I'm ready to sell," <laughs> and you're pre you're preventing that. Exactly. Yeah. And it creates jobs. I mean, you know, I, I've said this working waterfront. I mean, it really does. It creates jobs. Uh, you know, we got more people working out of the co-op since we did that. We built that new addition. Uh, on with you know, we didn't take the money and put it in our pocket. The working waterfront money. We took the money and built it another whole dock to accommodate dragons and other fisheries. So you've got some deep water access that, that wasn't available before. Correct. 
um, what what lessons would you um, say to you know a fisherman from another community listening? Uh, what lessons do you, did you learn about working with all these legal um, uh, documents and and the, and the process? How did you how did you uh, find that process to be? I found it to be a very com. I mean, it was very. Uh, uh, I should say, I, I guess the easy word would be easy. Um, the EMR was easy to work with. They they coach you you know right along through the program. And everything went smooth. A lot smoother than um, than I intend, you know, thought it would be. Um, most, you know, when people deal with state things like that or getting in, in bed, excuse me, French, with with the state, uh, people uh, sometimes get nervous. But everything went so smooth; it was unbelievable. And and um, in terms of of uh, the, the the co-op itself. Um, how do you see this playing out? What were some of the reactions in the community when you began to take this action? Uh, some people were, you know, it's, some people were upset that that they thought that we had an advantage. But for the most part, I bet you, ninety percent of the town was uh, was grateful that you know that that's exactly what they thought the co-op should be attended for. You know, for fishermen to use. That's great. Anything else you should add in terms of advice for others thinking about um, how to protect their working waterfronts? What advice would you give them? I, if you, who knows what the future holds? But this is one thing that you can predict. You know, if you put your property and work in waterfront, you can predict there's going to be at least uh, infrastructure for you, for the next generations of fishermen to use. If you don't, and you don't have the infrastructure, um, you might not have the fishermen. And if you want to preserve fishing for the future, get into this program. It's a great program. So you're just saying um, that the, 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 the wisdom of your father and your uncles to create the co-op, you're just kind of extending that wisdom into the future. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't get all the wisdom that they got. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. And good luck with the fishing. Stay warm out there today. All right, thank you. You guys have a good day. Thank, thank you. you. That's Jerry Cushman of the Port Clyde's Fisherman's Co-op um, and uh, telling the, the story of, of one group. Jen, what would you add to that story? Any any other details that you'd want to um, kind of pick up from, from that particular story that we, we've heard about? Uh, the one thing I'd add is that we at the Institute, when we did our uh, GIS mapping study where we did 142 interviews up and down the coast and to identify really the, you know, the key properties that we want to preserve. And of those, the Port Clyde property was one of it. It has all tight access. It had water, it had bait, it had fuel, it had, you know. Um, the one thing that uh, was an issue in Port Clyde is that the, um, the, the last of the trawl fleet, the drag fleet for ground fish, uh, was was close to possibly not having a place to dock. And mm. so instead of, like what Jerry said, instead of pocketing that money, which they could have done. I mean, they essentially sold off their development rights or a portion of their development rights for that property. They could have split it between the co-op members. Instead, they've sunk it in and raised an additional $500,000 and built a new wharf for the trawl fleet to have a home permanently. And I, you don't see that up and down the coast where you have multiple fisheries you know, looking out for each other and helping each other um, for that for that access. So it's been, and once the the wharf was actually bought, built um, and finished, we had a huge celebration on it where we had you know everyone from the coalition and legislators and state officials and NGOs and everyone who had done work on it there. And it was just so amazing to have something concrete to stand on a success that was just <laughs> amazing. So that's a great story. That's a great story. We're talking about working waterfronts and how to protect them. Um, Natalie, anything you'd want to add to to that kind of story um, uh, as you've kind of worked with other communities? Have you used that one as an example to say, look there at, at Port Clyde? Yeah, um, particularly because it is such a, um, that story, there's a variety of different fisheries coming out of that port. And, and that's just a, a really excellent example as so much of our fisheries are more and more dependent on um, accessing primarily lobster. Um, and as you know, there's a lot of efforts to bring in a variety of other fisheries back. Um, so this is a great example of um, maintaining access so that when those other fisheries hopefully do come back someday, um, there will still be a way for fishermen to be able to act, to be able to get out there and, and go after those fisheries. Mm-hmm. 
The, the notion of, of using this kind of permanent covenant, was that a hard um, thing to, for people to grasp, or did they get it because we've seen it in other places, the use of covenants, the conservation easement type thing? Right, and I think that creating a specific working waterfront, one uh, without requiring public access for now, uh, was really in- helpful, I think, for fishermen to wrap their heads around. They felt a little more comfortable. I think the first year or so, um, we, you know, people were sort of on the sidelines watching, you know, some of the projects go through and take the first leap into the into the pool so to speak and um, now that they see that oh it's not so bad it's pretty easy there's not you know nothing bad's going to happen the state's not going to do anything bad or you know threatening or whatever um, so <clears throat> we have a lineup right now you know of, uh, of uh, applications from the last round where we ran out of money we now have 1.74 million dollars uh, or 1.75 million dollars to open up the applications again in probably early winter, like January, February time, I'm guessing, somewhere around there this year, next year. And they, um, uh, there's so many people lined up in the wings right now, though that $1.75 million may only fund four or so projects. So we've got way more than that. So the demand is people are coming out of the woodwork now ready to, to use this tool. So, um, we may be able to talk with Dave Cousins from the uh, Spruce Head Fisherman's Co-op a little later. Um, but um, as we talk about um, this, take us through the steps that a community would consider um, from the very beginning you know, to the conclusion. What, what would those steps, what would you recommend a community listening to the radio show um, do? How would they begin to gather people together to talk about the issues? Um, Jen, sure. Uh, so essentially, if it's a if it's it can be in a municipality. We've actually had a, a town wharf on uh, Idaho, where it's the only wharf that they have available for the ferry service, for the fishermen to use, and for um, uh, visitors and everything. There's only one wharf, mm-hmm. and if there's been a lot of um, growth in the in the summer and a lot of new people moving to the island and the worry was that in some future time period depending like what jerry said you know boards change all the time and uses change and they were really worried if um people got into uh, uh positions on the town and didn't want commercial fishing happening on the on the wharf anymore they would cut that out make it a you know regulation that no more fishing was there there the fishermen would disappear they'd have mm. to move inland mm. and so then you go from really a, a year-round community to a seasonal community at that point, because that's the major, mm-hmm. you know, thrust of jobs is is around commercial fishing out there, uh, lobstering and that kind of thing. So municipalities can use it. Um, we've had land trusts use it as well. And essentially, uh, there's a very long application, but uh, the state of Maine has hired uh, contractors. CEI has filled that role for the last six years to walk everyone through every single step of it, help them get the applications in, um, and have all of the supporting materials they need, whether it's, you know, uh, you need to be looking at in that town, are there already regulations for zoning? Um, that's a show of support, you know, that if you're in a zone where there's already um, protection, protection for, for right. that is one one piece of it. Um, having letters of support from either, you know, uh, regional legislators ab- about that property. But it um, sounds like it, it all needs to start with a conversation mm-hmm. among uh, people who have an interest in that particular um, piece of property or the wharf mm-hmm. to say, well, h- how can we protect it? Do you get involved? In, who, who gets involved in helping those conversations? I can address that a little bit. Um, we, uh, we've done a whole number of workshops up and down mm-hmm. the coast over, over several different years um, where we, we basically introduce what the tools are um, and then encourage communities to go back and um, basically talk amongst each other um, so that they can identify what are the needs for that community. And also... What's the vision for that community 10, 15, 50 years down the line? And a lot of times that starts, again, back at sort of a harbor planning or comprehensive planning level where towns can take a look at, um, you know, what do we actually have in our possession for for waterfront access? Um, And um, as many towns do that, there's sort of a discovery that, you know, it it takes kind of looking at what you have to discover what you're losing. Mm. Um, And in a lot of situations, towns start recognizing where the changes are happening and where land ownership has changed, which in and of itself is not a bad thing, except when it's attached to access to the to the waterfront changing as well. Um, so recognizing that 
some areas that used to be historical access that are no longer access, even maybe because not because the land changed, but just because over time people lose the awareness of that access. Um, and so the assumption is that it belongs to your neighbor when in fact it's a public access way. Um, that's happened in a number of towns up and down the coast. So really it does, as you say, start with a conversation, people talking to neighbors and each, other's at the, each other at the store to recognize that um, that the changes are happening. Mm. And and um, that question of, of rights of way that have mm-hmm. been disused and therefore nobody knows about them, how does one discover where um, rights of way might might have been? Any any clues about it, how a town does that? really starts with going to take a look at the tax maps um, mm. in the town offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and the state, um, through the, the state planning office, has a program to offer assistance um, and to, if need be, um, find a lawyer to help kind of go through all the paperwork and all the history historical title and deed sort of paperwork related to land ownership on the on the waterfront. Um, so you can go and, and sort of do a serious amount of digging. And there's a little bit of funding and a little bit of support at the state mm-hmm. to help make that mm-hmm. happen. It sounds like a detective story, exactly. kind of having to <laughs> figure that out. Jen? I just want to add and, and bring back the, the website that, that Natalie mentioned before. And that's really an interactive tool. It's not just a, here's a list of everything there is. It's a, it walks you through of who am I and what do I want? And it takes you through this guidance system, basically, and then takes you directly to the tools that are going to fix the problem or you know, the the materials that you need to answer the questions that you do. So it's not, it's a very interactive way to kind of go through that. And I just want to say that that's a great starting place if somebody's kind of like, okay, well, I'm a municipality or I'm a group looking for what, what is the tool that I want to use? We've come up with a suite of tools and not working waterfront access pilot program may not be the right one. Maybe current use taxation is, maybe eminent domain is, and maybe, you know, there's a suite of different kinds of things that are out there um, that are available. And, and this website is a great place to start to kind of walk you through to get you to the point of knowing which tool you want or what's going to work for you. And Natalie, remind us what that website is. Uh, accessingthemaincoast.com. Great. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU, and we're pr- proud to have people talking about working waterfronts because we feel like it's really important to do that. And uh, Natalie Springle is here from University of Maine Sea Grant and Jen Literal, the policy director of Island Institute. A little while later, we're going to talk with uh, Nick Batista, who is with uh, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree's office. But before we do that, um, maybe we can kind of get a sense of Maine started this work six or eight years ago. Um, you've really become a national leader. People are coming to Maine to say, how did you do this? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about um, taking this to a national stage. Natalie, you've had a, a recent conference in, in yeah, Portland. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maine really has emerged as the national leader um, in working waterfronts, which is not to say that it's the only state doing some incredible work in this arena, but um, many states have started looking at Maine for um, sort of some advice as to what 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 have you guys done? And um, it all really started with some early work with land trusts, sort of working with land trusts, again, a traditional conservation-oriented approach um, for a tool to protect working waterfronts through easements and such. Um, so that was sort of one of the early tools that really kind of got national recognition. Maine, Maine has had that long because, history of yes, using conservation easements. Exactly, okay. exactly. Particularly, in, in it started in York, Maine, um, mm-hmm. where there was a, a wharf that was protected through some easements through a land trust. Um, so, this, but then also the the work, the current use taxation, and the this the bond investment opportunity, um, all of those kind of got some national ink, really. Um, and then over the course of time, um, there were several times where delegations of some of us from Maine were invited to North Carolina, to Mississippi, to Alabama, to other places around the nation that were recognizing that they too were dealing with loss of working waterfront access. And they were sort of looking for tools, just like we were doing early on. So we would share sort of some of these early successes with different areas um, and and sort of help them um, identify how do you look at these issues, but address them in ways that are very specific to their home state because the drivers of the problem, so, you know, rising property values, inflated taxes, all these kinds of drivers are the same around the country, but the ramifications Mm. are slightly nuanced. So in North Carolina, you're dealing much more with what they know down there as dominiums and and sort of just the changes that are manifesting themselves are the same in different parts of the country in that people are losing access to the working waterfront. 
but how you how how you can adjust address them have to be sort of very localized. Mm. I can imagine, you know, in, in the scenario that uh, uh, Jen and, and Jerry Cushman were talking about, if if property values go up um, and fishermen are feeling desperate, um, they might sell. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine folks along the Gulf Coast with the oil uh, spill, there's probably a lot of developers kind of hanging back, waiting for the right time to kind of swoop in and buy that land so it, it disappears from... And and that actually, um, I was part of the delegation that went down to Mississippi and Alabama, and um, it was right after Hurricane Katrina. It was about mm. a year after the hurricane where um, they, you know, had the foresight of, of trying to look at the hurricane as an opportunity to um, rethink how they deal with their waterfronts. And, and what you just described was happening down there where um, condominiums were sort of the first thing that was able, because they had the funds condominiums and um, casinos were sort of the first thing that was able to immediately restructure Mm -hmm. and rebuild themselves, um, in many cases at the expense of the traditional working waterfront. Let me list our phone number. I know we're going to try to call out to um, uh, Nick Batista in a a few minutes, but let's list our phone number in case folks have comments or questions um, or their own experience to share um, as we talk about protecting Maine's working waterfront. 1-866- 625-9378 here on Talk of the Towns. That's one 625 9378 If you've got a question or a comment or want to share your experience of working to protect Maine's working waterfronts. Um, Jen, you've got some national legislation that you're kind of working on um, using Maine as a model. Right. Um, I think that I just want to kind of go back to um, the uh, kind of this Maine being setting sort of this uh, being the leader mm-hmm. in we in what was that 2006 was the first symposium for a national working waterfront waterways conference it was held in Norfolk Virginia and a whole suite of us went down to give presentations for that on the working waterfront access pilot program Senator Damon came down to talk about the current use taxation um, we had members of the working waterfront coalition talking about um, other tools that we've used um, how to build a coalition we had a whole kind of suite of those out of that um, first conference we really uh, started to hear similar stories but also recognizing that what we deem as working waterfront here in the state of Maine is not the same as what another state might classify their working waterfront and um, so that was really important kind of lesson for us at that time to uh, to, to recognize that um, since that point um, uh, Senator Collins has uh, put in a bill originally with the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act to create a working waterfront access uh, preservation program based off of the main model. Uh, since that time, she's uh, Magnuson has been reauthorized, so it's now uh, the attached to the Coastal Zone um, Management Act, which is being reauthorized. And uh, we also have a House bill that was initially um, put in by uh, uh, Congressman Allen and is now uh, put in by uh, Congressman Pingree. And uh, so we now have a, a Senate and a House bill waiting out there for an opportunity for um, uh, funding to to push those through and have those initiated because this is a nationwide problem. Um, we're not just seeing it in the state of Maine. This is happening elsewhere where you're losing your traditional historic uses of waterfront in other states where in Maine it is, you know, commercial fishing. In other states it may be boating or um, recreational fishing or things of that nature. Um, so it's using in, in working waterfronts as, as water-dependent uses. Um, right. the, the economic exactly. livelihood of a community is dependent on that access right. instead of the kind of more strictly recreational or kind of uh, just uh, living there. Right. So so in that case, it could be defined by, you know, a ferry or mm-hmm. a marina or, a, you know, that's or um, boat builders, you know, really the businesses that depend on the water. I think we have a call. Let's take that call first. Um, you're on Talk of the Towns. If you'd give us uh, your first name and where you're calling from and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, would that be me? Yes, that would be you. Thank uh-huh. you. <laughs> well, thank you for running the show and thank all your people for the work they're doing. I, I want to say uh, right off the bat that I am not a working waterfront guy. I, I have the distinction of having long line for uh, maybe two or three months with uh, a wonderful uh, skipper, Marty Bartlett, out of Rockland quite a while ago. Uh, but I'm not a fisherman. But uh, I, I wonder where in this discussion is the uh, – I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, we're talking about survival of the fishermen and survival of the jobs. 
and survival of the uh, working waterfront, but we're not talking about survival of the fish stock. Hmm. And I haven't heard that mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, when I heard that the uh, Port Clyde Co-op, which I really do strongly support uh, philosophically from what I know about it, uh, had uh, seen fit in their, you know, in their unfolding of their pursuit of, of jobs, which is totally understandable, to uh, provide docking for uh, the uh, trawler and dragging fleet, which is yet able to scrape a meager existence off the bottom of this scrubbed uh, ocean bottom that we were trying to live off of. Um, I wondered, as a devil's advocate, if perhaps the land were sold to people who didn't fish, if that might perhaps allow the fish themselves a chance to repopulate. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I am a human, and I'm, I'm you know, totally uh, supportive, of course, of uh, the, the development of, of human culture and life on the earth. But, you know, when you come to the fish, the fishermen and the fish, I mean, we... <sighs> You, you, you see what I'm getting at? Is there is there any relation, for example, between uh, in increasing the number of jobs and decreasing the degree of of, uh, of technologization with which the, the the quarry is being sought? Well, that's a that's a topic that we have dealt with in the past. But I, we'll get a short response from Jen Literal, who looks at some of these policy questions too. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Um, sure, I'll take a crack at this. Um, so I, I would start off by saying that we at the Island Institute, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at access to access to the water, you know, making sure that there's shoreside access, that there's infrastructure there. Um, but then also we then had to turn and realize that, okay, we're losing access to our oceans and the fish that's out there. Um, most of our heritage in the fishing in, in Maine and in New England was built on the back of the codfish, as we all know that. I mean, I, we've got, you know, um, churches on islands out there that have a codfish on their steeple and not <laughs> across. So it's, it's the, the holy codfish. Um, we know that, that that stock has been, you know, overfished, uh, and uh, we do have some of the stocks are coming back. Our haddock stock has been completely deemed rebuilt, um, which is a huge success um, over the, the last um 15 years or so, um, we've really been working to, you see that this transition of the cod fishing fishery, all of those fishermen have left and are now lobster lobster fishermen, essentially. Um, but we can't put all of our eggs in one basket. You know, we can't just overfish one fishery and then go back to another one and back to another one. So it's trying to find and strike a balance between those fisheries. And And I get your point of, you know, giving everything a break. Um, the issue that, that we really struggle with in that is that once you lose this, it's very hard to have that infrastructure back again when the fish stocks do come back. And we're not saying that we need to have, you know, 5,000 miles of working waterfront, but we can't have zero. Um, so we're really looking at just trying to preserve, like, what we've done so far is one mile out of 5,000 miles that already still in the state we have in the lobster fishery, you know, $300 million of revenue um, coming across and, you know, 5,000 or so fishermen in the lobster fishery. So that is a very strong and, and um, healthy fishery. Um, I do I struggle and I work every day with um, the last fleet of the uh, the trawl groundfish fishermen out of Port Clyde. I've um, been working with them for the last three years, hand in hand, on on keeping you know access to our coast. If we lose um, if we lose that access to ground fishing in Maine, we'll never get it back. It's uh, their permits and they're attached, and there's not going to be any new permits. And we have about 70 boats that still land in um, groundfish in the state of Maine. If we if we lose those two and they start fishing in another state or are sold off to other fishermen from other states, we could have five thousand miles of coastline. The ground fish could come back, and we will never have access to fish off of our own shores again. Mm. So we're really struggling to keep you know a foot in that and keep that you know keep that tie to those mm. to that access as well as access to our shores and having that infrastructure. So we'll we'll come back to the topic, I'm sure, because um, folks like uh, Robin Alden and the folks at Penobscot East are really trying to scratch their heads and figure out this. what's the balancing act in the fishing side, not right. just the access side. So thanks for the question. Uh, we're going now to Nick Batista. Nick is with Congresswoman Pingree's office, and, and uh, he's been kind of tracking some of this legislation. Um, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Nick. Thank you. 
Tell us a little bit about, um, um, I, I know um, Congresswoman Pingree's story and, and North Haven and so on, but you know, how has she been tracking this? Why is she interested in this particular issue? Well, as you said, she comes from, from North Haven and coming from an island community. She's naturally inclined to um, t- towards oceans issues, and she's worked hard in, in D.C. And, and up here in Maine to, to make sure our coastal communities are, are treated fairly and receive their proper recognition for the importance of working waterfronts to our economy, to our coastal communities, for economic development purposes. And, and that really comes from who she is as a person, her connection to North Haven, her um, long-term history with working waterfronts, with Maine, uh, Land for Maine's future, back when she was in the state legislature. Um, and and um, so as you've gotten involved, um, you've kind of looked at Maine uh, providing some leadership through its its own working waterfront. Um, as you have the opportunity to think about national legislation on the House side, um, what's being proposed? What's in the in the bill that Congresswoman uh, Pingree is is uh, sponsoring? The um well, she introduced legislation, the Keep America's Waterfronts Working Act, um, and that creates a federal program under the Coastal Zone Management Act to protect working waterfronts. Um, and it uses a covenant mechanism similar to what we have here in Maine, um, and it's a, a grants program. She's also helped write legislation that protects publicly owned working waterfronts, so the, um, you know, the, town, the town pier or um, the the ferry dock or, or what it, the fish exchange or, or something like that. Um, and then she's also helped to, to try to increase funding to some of the programs that tang- tangentially touch on working waterfront-related issues and um, also to work with the agencies to make sure they know how important working waterfront issues are, um, whether it's FEMA with flood zone remapping or the Economic Development Agency with um, a project like the Portland Fish Exchange. Um, she's generally helping make sure that our coastal communities, our, our coastal businesses are able to, to be successful. Um, and, you know, that, that goes back to some of the stuff that Jerry Cushman was talking about earlier, that I heard that if he has a successful business, then um, it makes it much more likely that the working waterfront will stay as a working waterfront. Mm. And and as you've kind of observed it, um, how how is Maine's leadership kind of playing out? This has this bipartisan support, um, support in the Senate and and, and Congresswoman Pingree's support in the House. Um, is Maine perceived as a leader um, in, in Washington around these issues? Maine, Maine definitely is perceived as a leader, um, and a lot of it comes from the great work that folks have done here on the ground. Um, you've heard a, a lot about today, I think. Um, and, and people look to Maine, you, you think of our pretty coastal harbors, our lobsters, um, and, and they really, that really strikes people as, as being classic Maine. And um, when you hear that we're trying to protect working waterfronts and we've done more work on protecting working waterfronts than some other states, it's natural for, for the Maine delegation to be a leader on this issue. And, you know, people, people follow what, what Maine does. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, we used to have that phrase, <laughs> as Maine goes, so that's, that's great to see that continued. How would people uh, kind of follow progress on, on this uh, national legislation, Nick? The, um, the, the two best ways are to either call the office um, in Portland at 207-774-5019 or contact us on the web at pingree.house.gov. Um, or, you know, the, the Island Institute's publication, The Working Waterfront, sometimes has updates. Um, that, that's a great feel for, for what's going on as well. There's a lot of information out there. Um, and um, um, does, does this kind of effort need um, main people supporting it? Um, how, how would people let um, their representatives in Congress know that they're in, in favor of this sort of thing? Give, give us a call. Let us, let us know what you're, what you're thinking. Great. Love to, love to hear from folks. And I know Shelley really um, appreciates hearing from, from all of her constituents. Well, thanks for being with us, and, and uh, give Congresswoman uh, Pingree our, our best wishes. Will do. Thank you. That was Nick Batista of Congresswoman Pingree's office in, in Portland. Um, Natalie Springle is with us, as well as Jen Literal. And we're talking about Maine's working waterfronts and how we protect them. Um, what more do we need to add? Uh, there's some other aspects of the recent conference. You had a conference in Portland that, uh, um, again, highlighted Maine's leadership role. Yeah, we did have a conference in Portland just um, at the end of September where um, it was a national conference. It was the second um, Working Waterfronts and Waterways National Conference. 
conference. Uh, the first one happened in Norfolk, Virginia in 2007. And um, at, at this symposium down in Portland, we had um, over 200 people who came from all around the country and pretty much every coastal state um, including Alaska and Hawaii, was represented, um, as well as every Great Lakes states, um, which really sort of signifies how um, prevalent the issue is throughout the nation. And um, probably the most significant thing um, about the event was um, we had support from all of our folks in Congress. Um, we had, pre you know, s either as in person or um, their staff were all there showing um, showing Maine's uh, congressional focus on this issue, which made us all really proud um, of the folks that we have in office. And um, uh, one of the most important things that came out of the symposium was um, uh, in a work session on the final day um, was sort of a consensus that there needs to be some sort of a national entity that looks at working waterfronts around the country um, to enable states and regions to look at and address working waterfronts from a more unified perspective. Um, and that's where the challenge comes in because it, there needs to be unified representation on the issue, but there also needs to be very localized solutions. Um, so what this, this sort of national effort is going to attempt to do, we're just getting started now, is um, to really provide a lot of models from around the nation. There's a lot of really great models we've talked about here in Maine, um, but there's also some really neat approaches to protecting working waterfronts um, coming from all sorts of different parts of the country. Um, so we'll be trying to highlight all of that. Mm, mm. And provide um, provide some support for folks like we just heard from Nick um, in Shelley Pingree's office. Um, how can we sort of be a source of information for um, the work that's happening on Capitol Hill? Mm. And I understand this is even has some international uh, flavor. You've just returned from Korea. I was did it, just was return there interest from Korea. In, was there interest in working waterfronts in Korea? Um, there was interest in working waterfronts in Korea. Um, and interestingly – Not um, Korea, Maine. No, no, <laughs> no. Korea with a K. <laughs> Um, yeah, there was definitely interest in working waterfronts in South Korea, um, particularly how to integrate multiple uses of, of the working waterfront. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, we're almost at the end of the hour. I don't know that we have time for a, a phone call, but if anybody wants a very quick comment, they could call one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 625 As we kind of wrap up um, the hour, um, we've talked a little bit about um, how people uh, get involved and how they might pull coalitions together. Anything else that you'd add to kind of the practical side of this? If community members are listening, they say, I'm concerned about either the, you know, the uh, clam diggers access um, or the fishermen's access or the, the, the shared pier that people have? What are people's – how would they get involved? Looking at the, the website probably, um, talking with other people in their community. Um, I guess the, the most important thing I would say to hit on here at the end is that, you know, uh, the tool that we have come up with with the access program has been really beneficial and there's still way more need than we have funding right now. Like I said, we have $1.75 million, um, which may fund three or four projects, but yet we've got 20 or more in the wings. Um, so, you know, obviously showing your support that, you know, when bond issues come up, um, that we, we need that money to keep those programs running. And it's, you know, we can't lose that. We've only, we've only preserved one mile right now out mm. of, you know, a very large coastline. Um, so have, that's, have that's private important. interests come into this? Are there land trusts that are helping raise money for these kinds of things? Are there uh, private donors that, that could, could get involved? Um, or yeah. are there individual towns that are saying, we'll put up some of our money for this sort of thing? Yeah, we're, we're looking at those other options of, you know, can you donate a working waterfront? property and we'll put a covenant on it, maybe have a land trust hold it or have, you know, the DMR hold it or figure out. So we're trying to come up with other solutions in that way. Um, the Of the $5 million, we've leveraged over $17 million in additional funding from mm. private sources who, and the same with the national program, if that, if the, when, if, when those bills go through, trying to be positive here, that they, um, they require a match from the states. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to continue to need that, those bond funds as matching funds. If there is a national program, we can't just let go of one and have the other. So it's it's really crucial to have have both of those. So mm. we're we're also looking at um, exploring models for how people could um, get tax deductions for donations towards working waterfront preservation. Um, that's a, a research project we have going right now because there is the opportunity to donate some funds to be involved in conservation of lands. That's sort of a, a model that's been tried and true here in Maine. Um, but there isn't either locally or nationally any model where someone can actually get some sort of a tax deduction for contributing to the protection space 
specifically of working waterfront. Mm. Um, so that's something that we're looking at um, developing models for that, perhaps. Because you can imagine that commercial interests who already own that land, they might be in, enticed <laughs> to participate if there was some kind of tax advantage exactly. to them. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. So as we wrap up, what are your hopes? Um, what are you? What's at stake? Re- re- recap what's at stake here and, and what are your hopes? Jen, first. Uh, We've had tremendous success, and um, I guess I've never sort of felt prouder working on any issue in the last five or six years. This has just been a really exciting one that everyone is behind and everyone's supportive of. Um, that, you know, we get permanent funding, I think, is really uh, looking at that and having all of these tools up and running and other options in the wings to to help. Great. Natalie, your hopes? Um, I I would say um, that we have had some tremendous successes, and um, the opportunity is to really enable the protection of working waterfront, not to just preserve the past, but to enable opportunities for the future, Mm. sort of new and emerging opportunities. So think of Jerry Cushman's story and and what they've done um, in Port Clyde and with that Fisherman's Co-op, and that's the future you want. Yeah. That's great. And thanks for both of you for your work on this and all of the other members, 140 organizations, part of of this Working Waterfront Coalition in Maine. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County. Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. And your support is particularly needed as we wrap up this um, year. So if you have um, some extra um, support, money that you could provide to the station um, as we wrap up the year, please give the station a call um, and uh, that would be much appreciated. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests uh, here in the studio. We had Jen Literal Policy Director of Island Institute, Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant. We're joined by phone by Jerry Cushman, President of the Port Clyde's Fisherman Co-op, and Nick Batista of Congresswoman Shelley Pingree's office. Thanks so much to our underwriters um, who make this program possible. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.